Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Today we're here talking tolerance with Maureen Costello, Director of Teaching Tolerance from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Maureen, welcome to the EdCast. Well, thank you so much, Matt. So tell us about Teaching Tolerance, the site, including a magazine, free curricular materials and resources. It feels newly relevant, Uh, but you launched in 1991. What was the goal when the Southern Poverty Law Center created this spinoff for educators? And what are your goals today? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because there has certainly been a uh, maturation process and an evolution in our goals. Teaching Tolerance was started in 1991 as a direct result of some of the other work that the Southern Poverty Law Center was doing specifically um, in hate cases, combating hate. And at the time, we had had a number of very important and high-profile civil suits against leaders of Klan organizations who had essentially um, instigated young men, 19, 20, 21-year-old men, to perpetrate horrible, horrible hate crimes, violence, killing people, damaging them for life, etc. And our founder, Morris Dees, at one point said, you know, I'm tired of seeing 19 and 20-year-olds who are already so imbued with hate that they're committing these heinous crimes. If we really want to combat hate, we have to start much earlier. And so, Teaching Tolerance was founded in order to uh, basically prevent the formation of prejudice, reduce the formation of prejudice, and produce a more open-minded generation. That was the beginning. And it was founded on a lot of the research theory around contact theory, which was, of course, that you could, in fact, have, if you brought people together and you focused them on some kind of meaningful work that was not about getting along, but was about doing something else, that they'd be able to see each other, the world from each other's perspective. You could uh, dissolve some of the strong group identity characteristics and bring about greater intergroup harmony. And of course, it's also true that the program founded in 1991 was founded after about 20 years of school integration. And so we had a lot of suburban schools that had once been 100% white that were being newly integrated. And the idea was that this was really important in those kinds of places. Well, what's happened since then, 25 years? First of all, what we did not know at the time was that 1989 was the peak of school integration in this country, and it has, in fact, decreased ever since. So those opportunities for contact were not really there. Secondly, we've learned a little bit more about contact theory, and we know that it has limitations. Um, it's particularly effective with dominant groups or in-groups, not so effective, effective with marginalized groups. And that brings us to the changes in demographics in American schools, which is that today more than half of the children in American schools are members of those marginalized groups. They're children of color, they live either in or near poverty, and what they don't need as the answer to their oppression or lack of equity, just try to take the perspective of the other person. Uh, And of course, we've also had an era of school reform. I mean, there's just been an unbelievable amount of change in 25 years. So our mission has evolved to the point where in the last 10 years, we've looked at prejudice reduction, intergroup relations, and 
promoting equitable experiences for our nations in our nation's schools. And we always look at practice. We are working with educators, we're working with administrators and counselors to really address their practices, ask them to think about how the decisions they make, you know, whether it's in teaching a lesson or in, you know, doing school discipline affects all students. I would say that in the last year, we have begun to kind of reimagine our mission once again, and we are now thinking in terms of the fact that what we really have to do is educate for a diverse democracy. Yeah, and I think that that year that you mentioned and, and where we are now is, is definitely critical. And you know, the site is incredibly always relevant, but this past year certainly it feels more so. How you're navigating the current political climate right now, a climate of divisiveness that trickles into schools, where it's even talking about tolerance, it feels like you're making a political stance. We have heard from so many teachers who are really, really struggling with this. Um, one of the stories that we heard, because we conducted two fairly large-scale surveys in 2016, and so we've heard from thousands, 12, 13,000 teachers. And one of them is a science teacher, and she said, I taught a STEM lesson about the importance of having more women and minorities in science, and the next day a parent complained that I was spouting liberal nonsense. Uh, now that's a science class. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of hesitation to um, to talk about diversity, to talk about the value of diversity, the kinds of things, you know, you talk about tolerance. We used to get criticized because tolerance didn't go far enough. And it seems that now it's like- it's too much. <laughs> it's too much for some folks. Um, I always thought of it as a basic American value. And that's basically what we kind of try to get people to think about. Talk about it as an American value talk about it early, talk about it often, and talk about it in a lot of different contexts so that when the context does seem a little bit political, it's part of a bigger picture. Yeah. So, so the, those challenges seem to be hurdles in this new sort of divisive world. Uh, best practices that you've found, in, in addition to having these conversations with overcoming these hurdles, when people don't want to talk about tolerance, when intolerance is the prevailing sentiment, it's in the air. Uh, how are people, listeners of this podcast, folks doing the work that you're doing as well, how do you overcome that in a way that's civil, that doesn't turn into this sort of uh, debate or, or name-calling fight? Well, the beginning, the name-calling, I mean, just can't be allowed in schools at all. So how do we deal with it? Um, we've suggested a number of things, and they're basically the same things we've always suggested. Um, communicate with parents, for one thing. Communicate at home, let them know, you know, make sure that they're partners in education. Start out the year with a clear set of kind of classroom norms and engage children, engage students in creating those norms. Um, practice dialogue. And in fact, practice, you know, we've become so accustomed to thinking that politics is about debate when in fact political discourse should in fact be about listening and trying to understand the other person's point of view. And if we could just make that shift that, okay, you know, you disagree, tell me about why you disagree. Talk about your experiences or your reasons. Um, so we have, we have to have more dialogue, we need to have more transparency with, uh, with parents. I think we need to have a community of educators in schools who are very, very clear about where the line is and very clear about 
the fact that they're there to build relationships with each other, with students and with families, but also that they're there for the human development of students. And you have, if you start with that as a groundwork, um, then you know, making room for everybody in the school kind of comes out of that. And, you know, and the rest can follow. The other thing is, as a, as a social studies teacher, because it's really not just tolerance, it's that there's, a lot of people feel there's really, they're walking a tightrope now between um, teaching about current events, American history, science, and being accused of being partisan. What teachers need to do is to develop in their students the skills and spirit of inquiry. And so rather than say, well, I think this or I think that, or have kids argue with each other about what they think, turn everything into a question. How do we figure this out? How does this compare to what we value? Who gets hurt and who benefits from this? And whatever kind of inquiry it is, you turn it into an inquiry. And that's certainly a way to avoid being partisan. Now, there are going to be people out there who don't even think you should be questioning anything. And, and certainly we, in, after our January issue of the magazine, I know we got some people said, unsubscribe me unless you're going to support the president 100%. Well, our job is not to support any political party 100% or otherwise. And we have to, you know, just develop those skills that are so essential to what informed humane citizens are able to do. So in developing all this content, as an editor, what, what content is resonating with your audience particularly so this past year? Here at the Usable Knowledge and the One and All campaign, there's certain themes that really strike a chord with our audiences, whether it's bullying prevention in schools or other subjects like that. Is there any trend that you're noting that people are really uh, latching onto or you're seeing a huge influx of comments? It's the, oh my God, what just happened on the news? What do I need today? kind of stuff. It, uh, we wrote something called the day after um, for the election. We actually wrote it before the election. And so we wrote it in a very down the middle way. No matter who wins, some of your students are going to be upset and here's how to get past it. And that next day, 125,000 people downloaded it. And that is just astronomical numbers. The other, uh, really hot topic has to do with protecting kids from immigrant families. Um, educators, we are finding, they want to know what the law is. They want to know how it's changing. They want to know how they can best address the emotional needs of those kids who are often just experiencing trauma in school, but also how they can support the families. And you know we're lucky in that we are part of the Southern Poverty Law Center, so we have an immigrant justice project. And what we've been able to do is get together with them and say, what's the latest? And then we can turn it into the kind of language that educators can use and get it out. So I would say it's really, it's navigating political situations and it has to do with immigration. And to the third probably is digital literacy. You know, kind of combing through these um, things like fake news and um, are search engines evil kind of mm, questions. Yeah. And what are they doing with that data? Yes. <laughs> so last question, and again, Maureen, thanks for taking the time to share all of this great wisdom and, and knowledge with uh, our communities. 
Um, that was, we we're doing a lot of discussion on what was discussed the past year, and, and even historically in many, many decades with, with your work. What do, you look, what do you look at for the next year? Do you see the same trends arising? What do you, as an editor, as a writer, most excited to tackle? Or what are the needs of your audience saying, we don't know how to do this, um, or we, we want to know how to do this or that? Uh, what do you think you're going to be writing about next year? Well, I know two things that we're going to be writing about. One is that we are working on a racial history project. A few years ago, we uh, launched an initiative called Teaching the Movement. That really, we graded all 50 states on how well their standards uh, looked at the modern civil rights movement. And one of the lessons we learned from that is that, it, that one of the reasons that the civil rights movement is not taught particularly well is because the 300 years that preceded it are not taught particularly well. And it seemed particularly a good time, given the kind of work universities are doing to look at the legacy of slavery, the kind of the scholarship that's been done in the last 20 years over the institution of slavery that hasn't percolated down. Mm -hmm. So we're working with a group of scholars who are advising, advising us. And what we are going to do is really issue some recommendations about how the racial history of our country should be incorporated into um, our social studies education from K to 12. Um, so that's something we're going to be writing about a lot, and, and it really has to do with racial justice. Uh, we are definitely going to be writing about issues that hit on what I think of as civic literacy and civic dispositions. We want, we recognize that diverse democracy thing involves not only getting along with other people, but also having a sense of agency and having a sense that I can do something. So we want to support teachers as they support the development of those skills and dispositions in students. I imagine we're still going to be writing about immigration um, a lot and how to really uh, serve uh, kids from immigrant families. And then who knows what else? Because we're always ready for a new topic. Proactive and reactive, that's a good sign of, a, yeah. of an organization. Uh, where can people, you know, in the upcoming year or, or looking at the archives, where can people learn more about all the fine work that you guys are doing? Well, you know, we have two websites right now, but as of July, they will be combined into one marvelous new website, and it will be at www.tolerance.org. And they should sign up for our newsletter because that's how we let people know about the new stuff on our site. Fantastic. Tolerance.org. Great URL. Yes. Maureen <laughs> Costello, Director of Teaching Tolerance from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, thank you for all your good work. Thank you, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, specifically usable knowledge in the one and all campaign here with questions sourced by Barry Walsh, Managing Editor of Usable Knowledge. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.